I want to start tonight by telling you about uh, Nabil Fakir. Some of you will immediately know who that is, others won't. I apologize, he's a footballer. But I, I assure you, it's not about football, because what I actually want you to think about is Nabil Fakir's knee. So if you're a, a, a football fan, this is great for you. And if you're a knee enthusiast, this is right up your street, okay? So Nabil Fakir, I think we've got a picture of Nabil Fakir. There he is. Um, he's a French footballer. He's just won the World Cup. He, d- he didn't start many games. He mainly came on as a sub. And as you can see, he was absolutely delighted whenever he was able to lift that trophy quite literally above his head. And he plays for Lyon in France. He's a French footballer. Uh, and about, about three years ago, he, he was playing, actually in his debut for France, the first game that he ever played for France, should have been one of the highlights of his career. Uh, and someone went in too hard on him, and he turned his knee, and he bust his ACL. So he, he was out for nine months, they operated, he came back. But since then, he, he's just gained momentum. And each season he's got better. He's missed a few games because of injury, knee injury. Uh, but last season for Leon, he played 38 games and scored 23 goals. And he's not a striker. He's not meant to score goals, and he scored 23 of them. He's great. After those performances last year, about six weeks ago, Liverpool, this is, this is where I'm, I get involved, <laughs> Liverpool wanted to sign him. They offered £53 million. And as soon as Liverpool make a bid of over £50 million in Liverpool, you know, panic stations, it's happening, you know that meme. Uh, People were uh, uh, tracking charter planes from Lyon to Liverpool. Do you think he's coming? That that is serious, not a joke. Um, And he came and he worked out his terms, worked out his wage. He, he, He shot some photographs. I think we've got a photograph of him. Welcome for Kia. The club did the artwork. He, he, he was just about to sign on the dotted line. And his medical results came back. Now, medicals are normally a formality because the footballers are really fit. And the medical said, we don't think his knee will last. That knee that, that got done three years ago, it, it, it's a botched job. They rushed the surgery. They rushed him back from injury too soon. And we think it's going to go again. It's not going to last. So all that Nabil Fakir has got is that T-shirt as a memento of his weekend in Liverpool. And he still plays for Leon, And it looks like he's not going to become a Liverpool player. But we want things to last, don't we? If you're going to spend... This is something we can all relate to. You're going to go out and spend £53 million on something... You want to make sure that it lasts? Some of us know, even sitting here right now in this heat, that our bodies aren't lasting very well. It's why at Food Bank, they ask for non-perishable goods, so that it'll last, so that people can benefit from it for longer. It's why over the next few weeks, whenever you might go out to buy your kids' school uniforms, you tell them that, don't worry, you'll grow into it, as they traipse along and trip up over the trousers. At the minute, we're having this with William. He's two. Uh, Clark's toddler shoes cost 35 quid a pop. And they go up a size, Clark's tell us, <laughs> every six weeks. I'm considering getting them clown shoes. Six months, that'll be fine. But we want things to last. And that's exactly what we're going to be looking at tonight in Joel chapter 3. Joel's answering another how can we be sure question. You remember last week? 
How can we be sure that the Lord will respond to true repentance? This week, it's different. How can they be sure that God's response will last? How can the people be sure that God's response will last? In chapter 3, verse 1, we just have a little recap of God's response. And it's amazing. See it there in three chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 1? In those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. How has God restored the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem? Well, if you've been here the last few weeks, if you've not, here's a, here's a little recap. Uh, Joel is speaking to Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel. After Solomon died, there was a civil war, and Judah are the southern kingdom. But they've turned away from God. They've not followed God. They haven't kept their promises to him. They haven't kept their covenant with God. Uh, So in Joel chapter 2, God speaks through Joel. And Joel paints a dreadful picture of judgment. Judgment that God will bring on them because they have not followed him. Locusts devastate and destroy the land. The people weep and wail. An elite army of assassins knocks at the door. And God himself is seen to be the one who is wielding nature and humanity in judgment against his own people. And if you flip back to chapter 2, verse 11, at the very end of that verse, you'll see the cry that Joel left us with. Who can endure it? Who can stand before this dreadful judgment? But despite the fact that it looks like there's no hope, God, the one who's commanding those armies of judgment, is also the one who in verse 12 says, return to me. Come back to me. But, but we got a sense, didn't we, that the people weren't really sure that this was going to work. Perhaps they couldn't get those pictures of judgment out of their mind. How could they be sure that the Lord would respond to our true repentance? And last week they, we saw that they could be sure. They could be sure because God firstly showed them how he was going to roll back the judgment undo it all. He was going to recreate meticulously, abundantly, restoratively, so that they could be absolutely sure that he would respond to their repentance. But we get to Joel chapter 3. And this one is clearly answering another big question. Remember last week we had 22 wills in the passage? This week, I just thought that I was being a bit paranoid and was spotting wills all over the place. I counted them. 22 wills again. (laughs) Two passages in a row, just cast your eyes down. Verse 2, I will, I will. Verse 4, I will. Verse 7, I will. Verse 8, I will, they will. Verse 12, I will. Verse 15, sun and moon will. 16, the Lord will. The earth and the heavens will, the Lord will. 17, you will. Jerusalem will. Never again will. Remember that from last week? Verse 18, mountains will, hills will, ravines will, a fountain will. Verse 19, Egypt will. Verse 20, Judah will. And verse 21, no, I will not. (laughs) We get the picture that Joel's trying to make sure that they know that something will happen. Last week, this week, the same thing. How can they be sure 
that God's response will last. How can they be sure that what God promised in the first half of chapter 3 won't just disappear? How can they be sure that, that God won't take it away from them? How can they be sure that their enemies won't take it away from them? How can they be sure that they can't lose it themselves? Here's the first answer to that question. They can be sure that this will last because God will judge and punish his people's enemies. God will judge and punish his people's enemies. We see that from verse 2 down to verse 16. And the first few verses show that this judgment and punishment will be deserved. Just look at verse 2 with me. You see that it's God speaking the first person. I will gather the nations. God is going to be the one to say that it's time. God will gather the nations and he's going to gather them to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now the name Jehoshaphat means the Lord judges. So God is going to gather the people to the valley of the Lord judges. Can you guess what's going to happen? And at the end of verse 2, we read the indictment that the Lord brings to the nations. He says, there I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people, Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. God had had gathered his people together and the nations had scattered them. God had made them one and uh, and the nations divided them. They treated God's people like poker chips. They gambled with them. They sold boys for sex and they sold girls for a bottle of wine. Boys and girls really does mean children. God's judgment and punishment is deserved. I don't know if you remember, this is a few months ago. There was a guy called Russell Margreaves. He had three daughters, Lauren, Madison, and Morgan, and they were all gymnasts. And the doctor of their gymnastic team, he'd previously been a gymnastics doctor at Team USA. He had great pedigree. And under the guise of medical treatment, he'd been sexually abusing dozens and dozens of young girls, including Russell's children. You might have seen the video. I was going to show it, but you can't because quite a bit of swearing in it. Russell stood, the, the, cent, uh, the, the verdict had been passed, um, uh, Larry Nassar was the doctor's name, uh, and Larry Nassar had been found guilty, and at the sentencing, just before the sentence came, uh, the, the father of these three girls stood up, and, and he said to the judge, will you allow me to dress, to address this man? And the judge said, well, we, we don't normally do that, but in this instance, Yes. And immediately a cascade of expletives came out. And the judge says, no, sir, I'm going to have to stop you. I understand how you feel, but, but you can't say that. And then the man said, well, judge, if I can't talk to him, 
would you please give me five minutes in a locked room with him? And at first, some people in the, in the audience kind of laughed. And the judge said, no, I, I can't do that. And he said, okay. Will you give me one minute in a locked room with him? And the judge said, sir, that's not how our legal system works. And he said, I understand, but I have to do this. And he jumped over the bench, and he ran towards the man. And he was actually intercepted by some of the prison guards and correctional officers that were there, and they pinned him down. And as they pinned him down, they stroked his face. They said, we understand, but you can't do this. Can you understand that? If it was you, I'd want that. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. God is dealing with these people as we want them to be dealt with. God is going to deal with these people as they should be dealt with. Rightly, by God. Not vindictively, by us. And in verse 4, God asked them, do you have some charge against me? Do you, think, do you think that your actions are warranted? Do you think that my people deserve in some way to be treated this way? And, and he adds to the crimes in verse 5. You also took my silver and my gold and carried off my finest treasures to your temples. The, the very place that God dwelt. This is actually more serious than what we see in verse 3. It made a mockery of God and his name. And in verse 7 and 8, we see that the punishment will fit the crime. God says, see, I am going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabians, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. This punishment will be deserved. It will also be inescapable, verse 9 to 11. These three verses are, are all sarcastic. You can see that in verse 10, can't you? God's talking to farmers. Get your plows out and make them into swords. Get your hoes out and make them into spears. Let, let the weak person shout out, I am strong. Thank you. We've seen the picture of the Lord's army back in chapter 2, haven't we? This elite army of assassins. What is, what is a homemade weapon going to do against that army? They stand no chance. And God tells them in verse 11 to come quickly to come in God's time. And, and indeed in verse 12 and 13, we also see that it will be time. The time has come for God to act. We see that the language of harvest, it's, it's ripe. 
we see at the end of verse 13 exactly the same image as was in chapter 2:24. Let me read chapter 2:24. This is when God was blessing and restoring Judah. He said, "The threshing floors, which were empty, will be filled with grain. The vats will overflow with new wine and with oil." But here in verse 13, it's a different picture. <laughs> Come trample the grapes. The wine press is full and the vats overflow. So great is their wickedness. And finally, in verse 14 to 16, we see that it will be final. Verse 14 reads a little bit like, like Waterloo on a bad day, like Waterloo on a good day, really. It's pandemonium panic, anxiety, stress. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Everyone's waiting. Chapter 3, verse 15. It is exactly the same words as we had back in chapter 2, verse 10. And almost exactly the same words as we had back in verse 31 of chapter 2. The sun and moon will be darkened and the stars no longer shine. And finally, we hear again that the Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. This has got echoes back to chapter 2, verse 11. Do you remember? It, it was the Lord who thundered at the head of his army of judgment. And all of these echoes pointed to the fact that here Joel is talking about the final end, the final day with God roaring like a lion against his enemies. How can God's people be sure that his response will last? Because God will judge and punish his people's enemies. Joel is saying, and in fact God is saying, that they can be sure that he will judge and punish his people's enemies, and that this proves that his response to them will last. Because Judah's enemies won't be able to ever oppress them again. Judah's enemies won't ever be able to displace them again, won't ever be able to divide them again, won't ever be able to scatter them again. Judah's enemies won't ever be able to enslave them again. They'll never be able to take their sons and their daughters again because God will judge and punish them. I, I, I want to be really clear about one thing here tonight. And it's a really hard thing, but it's a true thing. The whole of Joel chapter 3 is presented as good news. The whole of Joel chapter 3 is written to God's people. There are other passages in the Bible that sound like this that are written to the nations. But this is written to God's people. When I read it for the first time, I immediately jumped and thought, okay, verse 1 to 16 is the bad news, and then verse 17 to the end is the good news. But that's not how Joel is presenting this. 
The Bible maintains again and again that God judging and punishing his and his people's enemies is a right thing and it is ultimately a good thing. I guess that we would be more likely to see this as a good thing immediately if we were Christians sitting here tonight in central Nigeria. Christian Solidarity Worldwide reports that in the first quarter of this year, January, February, March 2018, there were 106 attacks on Christians by Fulani Herda militia, and 1,061 people were killed. Things got better in April, May, and June. There were only 46 attacks. Only 400 Christians were killed. Just a Five weeks ago, 22nd, 23rd, and 24th of June, 200 people were attacked and killed in one spate. This is only the figures for for central Nigeria. It's by far the worst part of the country, but more attacks and more deaths have occurred elsewhere. How would we read Joel chapter 3 automatically if we were sitting in a central Nigerian village The empty chair is only empty because our brothers and sisters have been martyred last week. Knowing that it could be us that they take next. I guess we would see much more clearly what Joel is saying. This might be really hard to work through. If so, I'd love to talk to you about it afterwards. I've been thinking about it a lot this week. But God will defeat all of our enemies and his enemies. Sin, death, hell, the devil, all who are against him, all who do not follow him, all who oppress us, so that there will be nothing and nobody left to try and take what we have, which means that what we have will last That was great news for the people of Joel's day. They felt that. They were under attack on every side. And Joel showed them a future where it was sure. I was chatting with someone about this passage this week, and they thought that the most shocking thing for those who heard this originally was that all this would happen in the future, they wouldn't have had any problem with God judging their enemies. They wanted to be free from oppression. They wanted to be free, and they just wanted it to happen sooner. So it's important to remember that the fact that we sit here around 2,500 years after this was written, and that this day still hasn't come, shows that God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. This this doesn't affect the character of God that we saw in chapter 2, verse 13. In in fact, it confirms it. And the fact that this passage here is sandwiched between chapter 2, verse 32, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, and the very end of verse 16 that we'll look at in a minute shows that God wants people to be saved from this day. This is a passage that shows that God will one day finally destroy all evil. But it also shows that while we wait for that day, 
he is calling the nations to himself. So if you're not, not a Christian yet here this evening, we're so glad that you're here. I'd love to talk to you afterwards. If, if, if you've heard some of these sermons on Joel, you'll have heard that three times in three weeks in three different ways, Joel has expressed that he wants you and God wants you to come to him. In chapter 2, verse 12, the first week, we saw that God wants you to truly turn to him. In 2, verse 32, last week, we saw that if God is calling you, he wants you to call out to him. And tonight, in 3.16, we'll see that God wants you to take refuge in him. He, he wants to be your stronghold in the face of judgment. We have all sinned. None of us have followed God. We've all fallen short of his standards but he has also provided the way for us to be saved. The Lord Jesus Christ was judged so that you don't have to be. Just outside Jerusalem, on a hill, on a cross, and the earth did shake, and the heavens were darkened, and the Lord did thunder and roar as he poured out all of his wrath for your sin on his Son. So come to him. Truly turn to him. Call on his name. Take refuge in him. And you won't face this judgment yourself because Christ faced it for you. How can they be sure that this will last? Because God will judge and punish his people's enemies. Secondly, and more briefly, How can they be sure this will last? Because God will save and bless his people. And we see that in verse 16 to 21. And firstly, we see that it will be undeserved. Let me read verse 16 again. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and the heavens will tremble. You might notice if you flick back to chapter 2, verse 11, that something's changed. It's only subtle. And it's God has changed where he is. Before he was at the head of the army of judgment coming to Jerusalem. But now he is standing in Jerusalem. A refuge, a stronghold for his people. And he's roaring at the nations. The the people, as they heard this, would think, God is no longer against us. He's no longer roaring at us. We hear the roar coming from a different direction. And in verse 16b, we see that the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. I've struggled this week uh, as a thought about this verse. How do you express it? (laughs) Lord, help us. In uh, about 10 years ago, uh, I went with my brother to Canada. Um, We spent three weeks. A friend was getting married, and so we went to the wedding and spent some time with him, and then we went on a road trip through the Rocky Mountains. It was absolutely brilliant. Uh, And we went to, uh, to Lake Louise, 
And if you, any of you have been to Lake Louise, you'll know that's absolutely magnificent. And just on the right-hand side, I, I didn't know the name of this mountain. I just climbed it. It's, oh, we climbed up from Lake Louise to Lake Agnes, which is the top of, of a mountain called Mount Saint. I've not written it down. I'm not sure what it is. It's about two and a half times as high as Box Hill. <laughs> not that big. 1,300 feet. And on, on Lake Louise, it was 90 degrees. The sun was shining. And we thought, we'll go up to get some, some cool air. Uh, we weren't prepared. We just were in trainers and shorts. And, and as we started around this winding path, we soon realized that everyone else was in hiking equipment. Of course, being two kind of 19-year-old scousers, we thought that they were probably you know, not risky enough and that we were doing fine. And as we, as we climbed, conditions really quickly and really seriously changed. Other people started putting on the jumpers that they brought and the hats that they brought and the snoods that they brought and the gloves that they brought. And eventually, snow began to fall. And we were absolutely freezing. And there was loads of people around, but we began to panic. And we saw ahead of us a tea room. <laughs> and we could not have been more delighted to be English and sit down and ask for a cup of tea. In the midst of the storm outside that we were totally unprepared for, we found shelter. But that's nothing compared to what God has done for us. The line, I said it a few weeks ago, but the line in that song, Jerusalem, is that Jesus stood before the wrath of God, shielding sinners with his blood. That puts it a bit better than a tea room in Canada. And it will be incredible, verse 17. Then you will know that I, the Lord your God, dwell in Zion, my holy hill. Jerusalem will be holy. Never again will foreigners invade her. In that day, the mountains will drip new wine and the hills will flow with milk. All the ravines of Judah will run with water. A fountain will flow out of the Lord's house. Firstly, God's presence will be with them. He says, never again will, again. (laughs) Remember that from last week? All Israel's enemies have now been dealt with. Their future is sure, will. And in verse 18, we see, I said last week that God had abundantly restored them. And I thought at first that I'd I'd missed the language because there's more. And I read that this is actually called superabundance. That sounds like a a word that Ian Dowie made up. But um, superabundance, it's more escalation, things getting even better. Pictures that go back to the promised land. Pictures that go back to the Garden of Eden. Pictures that we didn't make that much of in chapter 1. Pictures of drought. Here we have the reverse. And of course, as always in Joel, the high point of it isn't the mountains dripping with wine. They sound great. It's not the hills flowing with milk. It's not the ravines running with water. It's not the material reversal. It's the fact that God's house is now full of life and gives life. 
That was the main problem back in chapter one, wasn't it? In chapter one, verse nine, the temple was empty because the offerings couldn't be made. But here, everything has changed. And in verse 20, if we skip on one verse, we see that it will be forever through all generations. There's no coming back from this one, but in a good way. This is how it will always be. And in verse 19 and 21, we see that it will be final. Egypt and Edom, two of Israel's historic enemies standing for all the nations, are totally destroyed. They now receive what was coming to Judah in chapter 1, desolation, desert waste. Why? Again, because of what they'd done to God's people. All God's enemies are defeated. All of his people's enemies defeated. So God's response will last. Nothing's going to stop it now. And the book ends there with, with that line just, just a little bit removed from the rest of the text. The Lord dwells in Zion. It's really important that the book ends there. That's been the theme all the way through. In 1 verse 9, God wasn't there. In 2 verse 17, the question, where is there God? In chapter 2, 27, 20, and 29, we saw that God was again present with his people. In verse 17, we see the same thing. And here at the end, the sure cry of God at the end of this book is that the Lord dwells in Zion. I read this week, someone said, the ultimate characteristic of the day of the Lord in Joel is God's renewed, restored, and permanent presence with his people. Joel's not all about judgment. Joel's not all about locusts. It's not all about armies. It's not all about droughts. It's not all about sickles. It's not even about abundant harvest or greenery, or a reversal of fortunes, or grain, or oil, or wine. It's about the promise of the presence of God. Now, through the indwelling presence of his Spirit, and finally, one day, with him for eternity, with no enemies to hinder. Is that what you long for? Is that what you want in the future? If you're a Christian here tonight, then that's what you have for sure. Because Joel says will 44 times. Because God will judge and punish his people's enemies and because God will save and bless his people, you can know that if you have taken refuge in the Lord Jesus Christ. He will forgive you and he will be present with you forever. And that is sure. And there won't be anyone to take it away. You can't even do anything to take it away. I'm going to take just 30 seconds now to have a little bit of quiet 
And then after that, if, if you want to, you can flick forward. I'm going to read just a few verses, some from Revelation 21 and some from Revelation 22, two passages that pick up on a lot of the language from Joel, two passages that show the sure destiny of those who have taken refuge in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ.